Hello and welcome to Running the Table, your source for answers and advice on all things role-playing games. I'd like to thank all of you who have asked questions so far, and if you'd like to ask one of your own, you can still email them to rttpodcast at gmail.com, or you can ask them directly to Running the Table on Facebook or Twitter. I'm your host, Keith Diedrich, and joining me today are Angela Kraft from Fandible, and Robert Randall from the actual play podcast Blackspire, and the story crafting podcast Adventure Hook. Say hello, guys. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank Thanks. you. Looking forward to the conversation. Thanks for coming on. So, um, just to kind of get us off the ground, I think that our viewers would like to little, know a, a little bit more about you if they haven't heard of you before. Uh, viewers, listeners would like to know a little bit more. Uh, so, uh, let's start with you, Angela. What is... Could you give us a brief overview of uh, Fandible and kind of how it got started? Sure. So Fandible is, uh, the full name is the Fandible Podcast Network. We are an actual play podcast network that's been going on for about eight and a half-ish years now. And mm. it started because uh, all of us were geeks in New York City and we joined a meetup group for Vampire the Masquerade and it met in this generic deli in Midtown which anyone that's ever been to New York City you have seen one of these delis that have this meeting space up at the top you know you buy uh, you know crummy buffet food and you can go sit upstairs and there is this giant group of gamers there there's like 30 people that's way too many people to play Vampire the Masquerade but <laughs> Four of us found each other. You know, we ended up sitting at the same end of the table and we all realized that our role playing style really meshed well together. So we got together outside of the meetup and the very first time that we went over to Jesus's, he's kind of the organizer of all of this. He kind of set a microphone down in the middle of the table and was like, so I was thinking about maybe recording this for a podcast. How does that sound to everybody? And we were like sure um what's a podcast again since this was you know when podcasts are really just taking off uh and that's that's as they say is history since then we've done every single friday we post an actual play game in a whole variety of of genres and game styles it's a different game every week and then about three years ago we introduced an ongoing Numenera game that's the fandable long shot so every Tuesday that is a new installment in an ongoing story and then two years ago my husband and I we started a two-player Star Wars game and that I'm the GM for that and that's another thing that goes up every week on Thursdays and another like long ongoing story. Very nice. Uh, we actually on a on the previous episode of Running the Table, one of the questions was about how many players you need. So it's great to see some uh, two player live plays out there. Yes, yeah, it's a, a de definitely a different style, you know, different strategies that you need to keep the story going. But it's mm -hmm. it's really rewarding. Great, uh, and. One more question um, before uh, I'm going to ask you the same thing, Robert. Uh, having been doing podcasting for that long, I'm sure that you've hit some some bumps here and there. So what has actually been, do you think, the greatest challenge in your work with Fandible? Oh, the biggest challenge is trying to find that balance between wanting to put out a professional product on a regular basis and remembering that at the end of the day, we are friends who want to have fun. You know, we're literally playing games. And <laughs> yes, there is because we we've been doing this for so long and we want to continue growing. We want to treat this as a professional product. So you come to the table. We try. We've been working on our mic behavior and and characters and stories all this time. But every once in a while, we need to remind each other. It's like, hey, 
let's take this Saturday off. Let's go see a movie. Let's order in pizza, that sort of thing. Uh, just because you'll you'll burn out. I think every single group faces that. And then we have that, that double-edged sort of like, oh, if we burn out and stop putting out, stop gaming for a while, then we're not going to have new podcasts to put out. Uh, so, you know, you have to work really hard build up a buffer and then you can say hey guys it's christmas let's not play this week <laughs> all right thank you so much uh so uh robert mm -hmm. yes sir so same questions uh but first how how exactly did you get started doing your two podcasts that you're on it it is challenging to be doing multiple uh, productions at the same time. Um, uh, yes, absolutely. I yeah. am. Uh, I'm learning uh, a lot of this as I go. Um, the uh, the impetus for uh, the uh, me getting involved in this in the first place was um, my own uh, the Black Spire, basically Dungeons and Dragons personal campaign that I've been running a number of friends through, in uh, a number of different ways for well over a decade. Uh, you know, uh, the my current group of friends kind of uh, the, had suggested maybe we turn it into something more. And uh, from there, I began to learn about other actual play podcasts and what it might take to for us to record our own. Uh, and I ended up inviting um, or, well, in a weird quirk of fate, I had been invited on as a special guest on the Laugh Finder podcast, which is a, another Baltimore based uh, uh, actual play show um, that a friend of mine, Jim Meyer, a local comedian, is on. Um, and uh, through basically us discussing from there, he came on as uh, the newest player character to basically serve as the eyes and the ears of the new audience uh, of that show. And uh, from uh, the, a lot of the brainstorming that I would do with uh, an old gaming buddy of mine, Aaron Campbell, um, uh, together we came up with the idea of uh, taking those brainstorming sessions and turning that into another show, the advent which basically became the Adventure Hook show. So they were all sort of developing at the same time and uh sort of struck all at once and then i found myself um you know juggling the chainsaws of it all to try to keep <laughs> it you know uh going um to uh as well as you know the learning curve of actually you know learning editing and uh hosting and all web and all that other stuff that i really didn't know all that much about but was determined to learn it as i went i suppose so very interesting uh and what among all of those uh, hurdles that you faced do you think was probably the biggest? Well, I suppose I suppose I would say that um, I had underestimated um, really what would be required uh, of editing, um, which I'm sure every podcaster out there is like laughing you know to themselves because you know of course we all underestimated yeah. what that would actually <laughs> entail uh, to say nothing of the fact that like I really try to turn, um, the rawness of the around the table experience of Blackspire into something very radio drama esque with music and sound effects and all that kind of fun stuff that takes, you know, all that much more work, of course, uh, to turn out, um, you know, something that sounds that way. Um, but, um, it's, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, it's, you, you have to put the work in to get something worthwhile out and, you know, hopefully people agree that it's worth the, worth the time I spend. I'm not sure if my <laughs> wife would agree, but, um. You know, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, we, uh, one, one of the other podcasts that I am on experiencing gold is set entirely to music and you're right. It definitely just adds that whole extra layer of complexity to editing that mm. otherwise wouldn't be there, but it adds such another layer to the listening experience as well that it's, it's hard to say no. Mm. Well, especially when you get those um, those beautiful moments where it all just syncs up just ever so beautifully as if it had been intended all along. And then, mm -hmm. you know, from there it, it can build into like those real, you know, um, amazing beats uh, can build on each other to make these like really cool arcs, especially when um, applied to things like um, I, uh, I have the, the, the fortunate privilege of uh, having permission to use uh, the work from the, the Crowd Chamber label. And they have all kinds of amazing, like, dark ambient albums that uh, I can, like, just drop into an episode and you, it kind of takes form. It's really, really interesting. So. Very fun. 
Uh, I have one more question for both of you. And these questions kind of come from a grab bag of, well, they're questions that don't really fit anywhere else. Uh, so your question for this episode is, what is your favorite monster or enemy from any game, tabletop or video or what have you? Ooh. Yeah, it's a tough one. Uh, I I would have to say for myself mm. that one of my favorite monsters or enemies is actually uh, Dracula in the Castlevania games. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Okay. No, that's good. That's good. Um, I would actually probably echo that sentiment in the sense that um, if I had to pick one, like the vampire is, of course, the classic and you can do a lot with that, uh, you know, I mean, the vampire has been reimagined so many times that you can kind of almost apply it to anything. Uh, but, uh, the, you know, the, the monster within is, of course, the, 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 you know, the truest villain. And, you know, Dracula and, uh, you know, the, the, the vampire sort of represents that. Uh, so is always going to be sort of a timeless villain. So if I had to pick one, uh, it would be that. All right, so I'm not much of a video gamer, and I don't read monster manuals, so I don't know that many like iconic D&D role-playing style monsters. So if I can be slightly self-serving and self-promotional, uh, my husband did a World of Darkness campaign, a little bit on this theme of vampires, where the monster was, uh, he, he's been called the ink monster, and he's basically this formless blob of ink that's uh, only desire is to acquire memories. So he'll like farm a herd of people and make sure they have really happy lives so that then he can consume their memories and you know leave them dead. Nice. Okay, so we've got the un- the um, monster within and the unknown slash death. Yes. Yeah, think we we covered some primal fears there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right, thank you so much for that. Um, and so this episode we are going to be discussing outside of what you guys have done uh, and how interesting that is, we are going to be discussing kind of getting your players together and building the setting for a story and prepping for your first session in that world. Hmm. Uh, So all of these questions have to do with that. Um, And so let's jump right in. Uh, The first question we have is... When it comes to homebrew settings, when do you think is a good time to start homebrewing, especially for a new player and new dungeon master? And should I go full tilt and create my own world, or start by just modifying an existing setting? Why or why not? Hmm. Good question. Angela, do you want to take this one first? Yeah, sure. So I think the time to start homebrewing is, well, really, very, very few people are, I believe, are ever going to pick up a game and actually run it 100% the way that the designers or the writers imagined. So almost any time that you are running a game, you're going to be homebrewing something, either because your players have gone completely off the rails and have decided that they're going to completely ignore your dungeon and actually just want to talk to all the shopkeepers. So you need to come (laughs) up with everybody in this town. That's never happened to me. Or you will forget this minuscule rule. So you need to to uh, make house rules on the fly. So no matter how well you prepare, you're going to end up um, doing a homebrew world from the get-go. Now, for when do you want to do it, like, purposefully? Again, that's as soon as you have the itch. You know, I think I started homebrewing settings very, very early on uh, where, like, the second game that I ran, it was in a homebrewed setting, and it was way too ambitious for me. Partly it was I was using a system that didn't really 
mesh with the the mechanics didn't support the type of story I was trying to tell. It was just the only game that I knew. So I was trying to force things in there. But you you learn by trial and error. So the first time that you get an idea for like, oh, hey, wouldn't this uh, wouldn't uh, Vampire the Masquerade be cooler if it was set in 1920s Chicago? Heck, yeah. Go do that. Or it's I want to run a game in Firefly, but not actually Firefly because I don't want to get sued. And so you do a riff off of an existing property. Or I had a crazy dream last night I think could be a cool game setting. As soon as you have that inkling, that is the time to start doing a homebrew setting. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. I, I think that um, it might not be explicitly stated, but I think that part of this question might be coming from a... a a place of fear of being cliche and mm-hmm. my sentiments towards that are if you're starting out be cliche well learn the cliches at least until you can break them you know that's yeah. a good way to think about it too i mean there's a reason why homebrew worlds exist and why even people who like me who love homebrew and they're you know uh like that's our bread and butter will still have a lo- great, you know, love for those settings and like going back to them because like there's something to be said for, you know, uh, I, that shared universe too. you know, the, the idea that like we might all kind of feel like we've been to the forgotten realms, you know, we've made we've never played together around the same table, but we all kind of feel like if, yeah, if we played in that game, we kind of know what that feels like. Same thing with Vampire or, or any any of the, the games, especially ones with like a, a you know a really strong theme to it. Uh, and I think that's probably more, uh, you know, I may, if this uh, this potential GM needs a little kick out the door, well, then by all means. I mean, yes, if you have that urge, please, you know, uh, either modify something that's already out there or start, you know, sc- start from scratch is a good way to go. But uh, uh, to sort of build off the question from before, I mean, the world, especially homebrews, uh, are always going to be shaped by your player characters. So, you know, developing that sort of stuff simultaneously is a good way to develop your homebrew world as well. Basically, your player characters and their interests and goals, you know, uh, will inform your world. Like, you know, the the beliefs and face of the churches, for example, should shape the political, you know, realm that you're you're deciding to forge or or what what have you. You know, that sort of approach as well. Um, But uh, maybe another way to think about it, regardless of, you know, like uh, Angela was saying, you know, regardless of whether you're, you know, doing something right out of the box or you're making your own world, you're always homebrewing something. And it has a little bit, maybe more to think about, um, uh, like the two skills of the GM being both, um, you know, how much prep work was put into the world prior to it. How much thinking did you do about this place before we ever got here? And also the the on the other side of the coin, your ability, your improvisational skills to sort of render an environment on the spot, make up all these shopkeepers like you're talking about, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, bring them all to life as well. And the way you could think about that is both of those are the same either on the same ring of keys or maybe even the same key. If you can think about it as being almost a fractal sort of uh, approach, right? Regardless of whether you've homebrewed it or you're doing it on the spot, they both match the theme of the story or the theme of the world or the theme of the forgotten realms or whatever. And knowing those rules allow you to render on the spot as well. And that could be another way to think about it is when you know the basics, you know, like the, even if they are cliche, and by all means, you know, we, that's always fun. You know, go back to Ravenloft. There's no harm in that, you know, quote, unquote, right? You know, it's, all, it's another fun setting, too. It's been completely reimagined in 5e, uh, you know, is yeah. another way to think about it. Um, that's that's great. Uh, yeah, I, I definitely agree. Improvisation and prep work are massive skills for any DM or GM. Um, and especially when it comes to uh, homebrewing, it is... Uh, a, like you said, a single key, even though it's two separate skills, it's very important and you need to match it in. Um, and that does touch on the next question we have, uh, which is how in depth should I go as a first time GM into fleshing out a setting that I've made? (laughs) And I've got some thoughts on this one, let me tell you. Yeah, why don't, why don't you start? Why don't you start? <laughs> uh, so, 
I am a big proponent of world building, mm. and I love doing it. But ultimately, you cannot make everything. And if you try, you'll never play. Yes. Which, if you love just world building, that's fine. You can just world build. But if you want to play, eventually you have to play. Don't let perfect become the enemy of good. That's a yes. good way to put it. That is yeah. a great way to put it. Mm-hmm. Well, and also the idea is like, okay, fine, you're world building, but so what? Like, who's going to see it, right? And you got to, it's like you, you think about building the world in the case of like, when do I get to reveal this, you know, and how? And like, what will be the coolest way for them to learn it? You know, and then you see the, the adventure to bring them to that moment. Like, I don't know about you guys, but I'm always like, I, w I will sometimes build backwards from like a great reveal scene or like a great oh, uh, aha moment or whatever, you know. Um, and that's, you know, and especially for world building, especially, you know, the secrets and lost legends and, you know, mm -hmm. tricks and, uh, you know, uh, uh, misinterpretations of, you know, whatever, all that good kind of fun stuff that the characters get to learn over time. You know, um, it only pulls it only has the, the right punch when you, you know, kind of led them down the trail in the first place. But uh... yeah, and and. Building backwards like that is something that I like to do as well. And I find that giving players all those clues along the way until you finally hit them with this big reveal or this big secret gives them that true feeling of an adventure. Mm -hmm. And I would add um, kind of uh, from what we're talking about at first with the whole you need to get to the table eventually. What I actually like to do is I you know, map out my kind of my some of the big picture things that I know are going to happen in the first session. I know mm -hmm. who the mayor is. I know what the economy of this mm -hmm. place is, you know, is it bartering or shipping and that sort of thing. But I actually don't get into the really big mysteries until I see my players at the table and I know what they want to do. Mm hmm. Because if it turns out that nobody's playing a religious person, well, then the mysteries of, of godhood might not be what this group actually wants to do. So maybe that's still noodling in the back of my head. You never know what's going to happen to this campaign three years down the road. Mm -hmm. But I like to, at least for that first session, just do enough prep that I feel like I can get to the table with these players. And it certainly helps when you've, if you're playing with the group that you've been playing with for ages. I know what's going to be catnip to my particular group. I know what they generally <laughs> don't care about. So I can definitely angle my prep in that direction. But it's often, all right, let's play this first time, kind of sandbox world. And now I'm seeing, oh, these two players, they are obviously colluding behind everyone else's back. So maybe I should make sure that we're ready for roguish shenanigans in this world and build a way for this world to support that sort of storytelling as opposed to a group of, you know, oh, we're all going to be noble warriors. All right, that's a different type of story that calls for a different type of world or at least details in this world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so that does also tie into the next question, uh, unless either of you had more to say on those first couple. No, not, not just yet, anyway. We might circle back. <laughs> Circling back is not an issue. Uh, the, the next question that we have uh, is, how much should I work with new players beforehand to get them familiar with the game or setting I'm using? How much of it mm. is on me and how much of it is on them? And what about their characters? Okay, um... Let, let me try this one, um, because I think this gets to the root of a more important uh, uh, role as far as a, a dungeon master or a game master or whoever is concerned. I think it's important um, that uh, the dungeon master take on the the role of re the most responsibility, like it's his or her game. And basically the onus of the work if there's work to be done, it's on the GM. It is the GM's duty, in a sense, to make sure that everybody has fun 
And if the GM has failed to do that, or if no one's, not everyone's having fun in one way or the other, the GM has failed in some respect of his or her duty. And so, like, it, the, if the idea is, like, I don't want to help this player because that's too much work for me, well, maybe that's too much work to be a GM for you. If uh, the other side of the coin is if the player is not willing to make any effort to, to meet you halfway or, or at least partially to come to the table and, you know, come to understand their character and the rules or whatever is required to, like, make so that they can actually play the game effectively, um, then, you know, maybe D Dungeons and Dragons or whatever that game isn't quite for them, you know. But, like, the idea is that, yes, I think that you uh, GM should feel encouraged to engage all of their players as actively as they want to be engaged and, and try to keep be fair, but, like, every... You know, I mean, we all have players who are more active than others. And, you know, like the ones who are who are emailing you after sessions with questions and stuff like that, you know? <laughs> um, which is great. I, you know, we all love those those people. And, you know, wish I wish we had more. I always wish we had more players who are just so into it that they kind of can't like they, they play even when we're not playing. Yes. You know? Yeah. Um, but a gift. You know, that and that being said, and you know, like, and maybe this person, you know, will become that person one day. They just need a little bit of encouragement. And so I would say that, yes, um, understanding their character uh, comes with understanding the world that you you're portraying. Um, yeah. And, and, so... and I, I would like to touch on this. I I am of the opinion personally that. As a GM it should be possible for cooperative players to sit down at your table and have fun with mm -hmm. no other statement. One way or the other, you should be able to bring cooperative players to a table that want to play and can play and have them have fun. Mm -hmm. And however you, you do that by spending time with them, doing a dry run, or just being really loose with the rules, what have you. It's kind of on you as the GM. And I would say to the, the question of, you know, how much do you rely on the players to understand things about the game or things about their character? The one thing that my group often does is if you are playing a class that has a different set of rules from everybody else, then it is your responsibility to keep track of the nitty-gritty of those rules. Uh, we rely on this a lot in our Shadowrun games, where mm. our Decker, mm. he is the keeper of the Decker rules. The GM yeah. has you know, the GM has an idea of how they work, but you know, the, when it comes down to it, it's like, hey, Decker, you're the one that needs to remember what your role is to log in, that sort of thing. Uh, and the, the GM just has so much else going on, he can't keep all of it in his head. And we also do the same thing for our magic users, which is great for me because I refuse to ever play a magic user. So I'm like, excellent. I never have to deal with extra rules. This is fantastic. <laughs> and and I mean, I'm coming at it from, I was coming at it from a new player perspective. Right. Sure. Right. So, I mean, I, uh, I, I do think that there's something to be said uh, for... Um, especially for the the new player as uh you know who knows there's there could be any number of hurdles that this person is trying to overcome that will that will that will just turn them into the greatest uh, you know RPG player ever if only they could just get over their shyness or their you know inability to add or whatever whatever's holding them back right you know i mean and depending on the game i mean there are a lot of rules and some of them seem very arbitrary and uh i i think probably what might help um, is if everybody could just kind of relax a little bit and think about, you know, all rules are interpretations. It's not like they're science. They're, you know, sort of signposts that the game master can use uh, to help, uh, you know, as a matrix to tell this story. Like what seems plausible or acceptable or reasonable, even in a world with... I don't know, spaceships or, you know, laser guns or, you know, magic missiles or whatever, you know, dragons, whatever unrealistic quote unquote things are in it. You know, if we've all bought into this system, this, you know, and these, you know, this system sort of it, uh, gives us the framework to tell these kinds of stories, you know, regardless, you know, um, if we can uh, encourage like the, the them to learn what 
you know, t- take ownership of their character is the best. Then they do the work for you, right? That's yes. kind of the meeting mm-hmm. halfway is what we're talking about. Yes, I think yeah. so. You know. And and the more you can encourage those new players who sit down at your table with nothing, the more they become the people who can sit there and have all the rules for their magic class. <laughs> yeah. Which is what you were saying, Robert, which is great. That's, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and so I actually have done in the past a uh, a sort of dry run where we just kind of sit down and we all talk about their characters and I'm explaining, well, this is probably like, this is, so I, I would first explain the world a little bit and then they would make their characters. Then we sit down, they're explaining their characters and I'm helping fit them into the world and we do a little bit of role playing and call it a night. Uh, just kind of as a dry run, get new players or people new to the story kind of integrated and connected to their character and get their character connected to the world. Mm-hmm. And so something kind of like that for a new GM uh, could be a good way to get a feel for how the players feel about it and kind of get them more interested in the world you built if you're building one yourself. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, I've heard those referred to as a session zero, and mm-hmm. I am yes. super, super jealous of any group that has the time to do a session zero. I think that they are incredibly useful, and just for everything that you're saying, is to make sure that everybody is at least familiar with the rules. You don't have to be comfortable with them yet, but do you understand how to do a basic skill role or a basic attack role? Do you understand the rules of this world? Uh, we had this in a Star Wars game where one of our players was not entirely familiar with all the Star Wars lore. And so we had to very quickly talk him down from the idea that droids go to med school. Sorry, David, I'm outing you here. Uh, it's like, no, 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 droids are just programmed. So it's good to have that in a session zero sort of thing to make sure everybody is on the same page and understands right. it all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, he could have gone to med school in like a couple seconds. Yes, yes. <laughs> All right. Well, that that uh, touches and kind of answers another question. Uh, should I do a dry run session zero kind of thing where we get familiar with the game, but don't really play? Or if we do, it is very light. Why or why not? Um, yes. Yeah. Sure. I mean, and it depends <laughs> on how ambitious of a, you know, a storyteller you are. There's ways that you can kind of do this too, where like say you have a session 0 that ends up with like a total party kill, right? That and then that becomes the seed for the investigation that your actual party goes on in episode 1 or whatever. You know, like there's ways that you can spin all this kind of stuff together and uh, you know, uh, so that like it takes on tech your world becomes more textured too. You know. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and those kinds of uh, whether whether planned or not, those kinds of integrations into the world really, really help people attach to the setting and to whoever they end up playing, even if it isn't the person that they initially set out to play. Mm-hmm. And even and uh, even a lot of this has to do with what kind of group you're in too, and and you know the yeah. game you're playing too. But like, so like I am not this type. I I am a I think everything well 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 out in advance as much as I can before you guys ever ever get there. But there are certainly some game masters, and I I appreciate the 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 approach where things basically get created on the fly. It's like, what's the name of this town that we've arrived at? And, you know, what does it look like? And blah, blah, blah. And basically taking suggestions from the player characters to mold the world as you go. And like, while that maybe, you know, lacks a certain planning ahead, if you have like big reveals that you're going for, if you can keep like, you know, thematic beats or whatever, it seems like there's ways that you could do it. Um, and uh, you can kind of reward your characters in an entirely different sort of way, especially if you allow them to like sort of switch roles, play NPCs for a while, things like that could make that some, you know, uh, I think, um, you know, certain games may maybe lend themselves to this a little better than others. But, you know, I, you know, I mean, those who are familiar with the Dungeons and Dragons style world certainly can imagine, you know, one world after another, I think. 
you know it's that kind of approach too mm-hmm. yeah and i mean there's always as cliche as it may seem there's always other ways of handling it uh such as things like you were just knocked out and now you find yourself in whatever place uh obviously more thought out than that but hey uh and so there's there's always a way to integrate anything that happens in that session zero into the next session mm-hmm. um and ultimately i i say that the only the only reason i can think of not to do a session zero is if you just don't have time for it yes that's what we run into as I said, you know, we're trying to put out a new podcast every week, and that means we're trying out lots and lots of new games uh, on a weekly or monthly basis. And it's, sometimes it's like, no, we cannot do session zero and record this game and then get back to the long shot. And we promise to do something for this Kickstarter. And so time mm. is just absolutely the issue that we run into. Yeah, it's the issue that I've run into before as well, um, especially with scheduling. Yes. Um, But ultimately, to answer the question, I say if I would say if you can find the time and get people together, do a session zero, whatever comes out of it, you can work with. Definitely. But to be the contrarian. Also, session zero is the perfect time to retcon something or you know, session one. <laughs> uh, somebody threw out there like, so we actually did. We did do a session zero for a changeling game. And I had established that my grandmother was my mentor. And then I forgot about that in the intervening two weeks. And in session one, I said that my grandmother was dead. And then it's like, well, got to redo that part of my character sheet. <laughs> I, I mean... Can't she be? Uh, she can be both, right? She could well, be. Do don't you now have to take revenge on whoever killed yeah. your mentor? <laughs> yes, obviously. Somebody killed this high school kid's grandmother, and now she needs to go on a grand <laughs> tale of revenge. I don't know. Yeah. Sounds like an episode of Buffy to me. There you go. Yeah, yeah. I actually think that was an episode of Buffy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, another question. Uh, we have two more questions. So the next one is uh, a little more open-ended. Uh, as you you both are pretty experienced with the homebrewing and creation of worlds, uh, this is a pretty good question for you guys, I think. Where do you look for inspiration for your settings, your events, and your characters? Well, I can answer characters really easily. I like to play around with voices, and I have a new baby, which gives me a captive audience for testing out voices. (laughs) It's perfect. Highly recommend it. Uh, But that's where a lot of my characters come up with. I'm just messing around with voices, and when I land on one that I like, I'm like, all right, I need to figure out who this voice belongs to. If it's a really weird voice, it's like, all right, obviously this is an NPC because nobody wants to listen to this voice for hours on end or I can't maintain the accent or the vocal style. Uh, So NPCs and PCs are 99% of the time they come from me playing around with voices. I'm pretty sure that uh, that's what George Lucas does as well. (laughs) Sick burn, man. (laughs) Uh, Robert, anything for settings? Uh, yeah, events, I mean, characters? well, I don't, I don't really need to go looking anymore at this point. Um, at least for the Black Spire world, it's uh, like I said, I've been developing it for like fifteen years on and off. So like, I have way, way, way more material than I can ever really reveal. Uh, <laughs> and it keeps growing every time I think about it, of course. But it's that kind of thing where like uh, any new thing, any new movie or book or comic or anything that I've encountered can inspire a new character or a new scenario or a new, um, you know, plot hook or twist or 
uh, you know, something a new new bit of nuance I can add to something I've already been doing that I can kind of slip in that you didn't notice the last time or whatever that kind of st- fun stuff too. Um, but uh, I mean, I too actually like doing voices and stuff like that. But um, I uh, I, uh, I I think I, I kind of have a couple of favorites that I probably recycle more often <laughs> than I should. Um, it, for me, it's. Um, it's again, it, it's all about like that theme. And for me, like I'll create a character around a name rather than a voice. Um, if I can, uh, like I will try to come up with the name that perfectly encapsulates, you know, the character or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you'll know who it is by knowing their name or whatever. Like I actually just like a quick example, because I'm, I'm actually pretty proud of this one. Uh, I did uh, a little hosting co-host uh, guest uh, spot for the Red Moon role-playing guys where we played some Planescape and I wrote uh, some characters uh, some pre-gens for them that were actually set in the Black Spire world uh, but we did it in Black Spire's past as sort of a, a nod to playing second edition which is what they wanted to do for this and uh, the Inquisitors uh, uh, who uh, one, of the char- one of the guys uh, ended up playing was uh, 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 Virgil St. Froskiss which I was like that is the most inquisitorial name I could possibly come up with so um and that was that we actually had a lot of fun with that so um make sure you guys check that out too if uh uh definitely actually i think it's uh already up on their uh their patreon site and we'll have it uh we're in the process of recording some more stuff so i don't know when this will actually release but uh depending on where you are in time and space definitely (laughs) that planescape yeah yeah that sounds great uh i would recommend that as well Uh, um i i am noticing something as well I'm thinking about it myself, and I'm thinking about some of where I get some of my inspiration from, and I also do voices. I mostly do them at my wife to annoy her. (laughs) But I also do voices. And I don't necessarily design around names, but I will pick themes. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I will pick, you know... Something about uh, the professions of a village and people start being designed as a thematic profession. Like you have a family of wheat growers, a family of bread bakers, and a deli owner. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure. And it progresses from there. Uh, one, Or it could be even more simple than that. Uh, for example, a friend of mine just made a series of NPCs that were helping out the players in his campaign, and all of them were named after mathematicians. Ooh, mm-hmm. fun. And so they all did, well, they, they were all wizards, and they did different forms of, well, magical math. Cool. That was, that was the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So inspiration can come from really anything that you can latch onto and flush out, I feel. And maybe people that have better memories than I do are able to keep all these ideas in their head and and refer back to them at a moment's notice. But for people like me or people who are just starting out, keep a document, keep a notebook for any time that inspiration strikes you, even if it's not a fully fledged idea yet. Maybe it is you come across or you make up a really interesting name, but you're in the middle of a meeting at work. So you can't exactly sit down and develop this awesome inquisitor or something quite yet. So make sure you throw it in your notebook, in your doc. And when you do have more time to start thinking about your game or your characters, then you can refer back to at least the framework has already been jotted down. Or it could even be presented like, well, this idea, you know, I just came up with a space opera idea, but I'm running a game in in uh, Helm in uh, D and D, so this isn't going to work yet. But again, you don't know what's going to happen in a couple of years, or on a random Saturday, your normal group can't get together. You're missing somebody, and you look at your ideas doc. It's like, wait, I could throw together a fate space opera one shot really fast, guys. You want to go ahead awesome. and do that? Yeah, totally. Yeah. That's that's really good advice. Taking notes is really good advice, both during Definitely. sessions and between. Um, and um, while you know typing is great, uh, you will create more neural pathways if you actually handwrite it, guys. Yes. So yeah. if you uh, yes, okay, uh, good. Everybody, I I was gonna say if you really get into being a GM, eventually you will find that your little notebook and a pen becomes one of your most 
prized possessions. You yes. can build a world just by writing a sentence. Yep. Write a sentence yeah. and now it's real. You know, that's all it takes. But the backup note, so if you are a, a digital native and so if your notes are digital, name your file something that you will remember because yeah. I was really creative in naming a, a notes file once and it took me three years to find it again in Google. So don't be like me. Name your file something boring. <laughs> GM notes, December 2018, something like that. Yeah, I, I actually lost the questions for this podcast oh, for no. about for about three weeks. <laughs> One time. Yeah, that, that was that was real fun. They are now named appropriately boringly. There you go. But you can always find them, so sometimes boring has a place. Not in your actual world building, just in the note taking. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh yeah, and uh, when it comes to like actual physical notebooks, I've started to be able to spot some of the people at my office who also are GMs by the fact that they carry around very particular styles of notebooks. Oh, really? What is the style? The style is vaguely fantasy-ish. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh... All right. So, very last question. As GMs, what has been the favorite encounter, creature, or character that you have made from scratch? Wow, that's a tough one. Yeah, I... My favorite, I, I, my favorite things always change. So uh, if I answer this now and then it comes up later, it'll probably be different. Sure, sure. Absolutely fair. <laughs> uh, but right now, the favorite character I have ever made is probably the character I am playing in Experience in Gold. I am not even as a GM, just as a, a player... But I I fully intend to use him as a GM just because I've fallen in love with him so much. Uh, and that is Pariah, the robot cowboy. Nice. Ah, I love it. Entirely modeled after the man with no name. So I think my favorite encounter that I've designed is uh, to give a little of a... Uh, setting for it for people that might not be familiar with the the games that I run but I run an ongoing game of end of the world for Fandible where every time that we sit down for a new session the game resets think about left for dead where you have the same characters mm. experiencing a different apocalypse they have no idea that they've been in this apocalypse a dozen times at this point um, but they always hit kind of the same story beats at the opening so it's left for dead mm. meets groundhog's day and one of the story beats is that these these guys are are jerks. They're very selfish people, <laughs> only concerned about themselves. When are they going to get drunk next? When are they going to get high next? Everyone really looks forward to the apocalypse starting, the listeners do, because it's like, all right, who's going to die? These guys deserve it. And one of the things that always happens is somebody forgot to bring beer, so they need to go to the store. And it's always the same corner store, the same bodega. And that's usually going to be the trigger for the apocalypse. Something is going to mm -hmm. happen while they're at the store and is going to affect the shopkeeper. And most of the time, they let it happen. It's like, nope, we've got to run. You know, monsters are coming, every man for himself. And then I ran an apocalypse recently where dragons came back and uh, they were, the, it was an attack and there was a lot of fires and it felt like bombings in New York City. And so it was very obviously emulating sort of, of terrorist attacks that we've we've seen. And so I had a group of uh, I had a mob show up that was very xenophobic, very racist, and they were going to attack the obviously immigrant shop owner. And my players rallied. My players said, no, this is one step too far. Zombies can come after Sammy. 
uh, uh, the robots can come after Sammy. Aliens can. But these jerks? No, we're not going to let it happen. So my ne'er do well, selfish players—they went out. They they will not. They, ray guns come out. They're going to run. But they stood up against guys with bats and pistols to defend their local bodega owner. And my heart grew three sizes that day. Hmm. <laughs> Neat. That sounds great. That sounds really great. Yeah, I really like that. Uh, what was the game that you were playing? It's End of the World. End of the World. I don't think I've ever played it, but I'm going to look into it. It's a lot of fun. Again, it's something that you need to homebrew a little bit uh, to get a you know slightly tangential, but also on topic. They call for the book calls for you to play yourselves, but that can always be a little bit mm. fraught. So we did yeah. you know we fictionalized ourselves. Like they're still playing totally average people. My players are much nicer than the characters than. Uh, than they play uh, mm. but you know, we still keep to that idea of these are average people that are in no way prepared to take on the terrors of the end of the world all right hmm. uh, i guess it's my turn then yeah um yes. yeah well uh that's gonna be a tough one to follow um i suppose i should uh, keep in theme i mean I, I have a number of like you know you know, classic moments that I can think back fondly as like, you know, great feathers in my GM cap. But I suppose something that someone else could listen to would be something I could actually cite from my Black Spire show. So um, if you really want to, so a scenario that I am really, really proud of was episode 13. So, and actually it served really, really well as a one shot. So you don't have to listen to the 12 that came before it. If you want to skip ahead, you can probably just enjoy it just based on this. We, uh, the scenario was, uh, Basically, one of my player characters had missed the previous session, and so we were basically trying to decide what had happened to her character in the meantime. And her character uh, is a gargoyle, which in the Black Spire world, I've decided they have this sort of strange osmosis relationship with the house that they're born out of, basically. And uh, But she's sort of a homeless gargoyle that can meld with other homes. And so she was trying to merge with the memories sort of uh, the psychometrically with the memories of this uh, slaughterhouse that they had been sort of trying to find their way into. And she ended up going on, I don't want to spoil it, but she ends up going on this strange, tr uh, like haunted, cursed, Cthulian-esque trip through the dark and twisted memories of this like really, really, really twisted building. And uh, uh, this was one of my, the first ones that I actually got to use some of that cryo chamber music. So like the soundtrack is really, really, really cool. And it's just like it, uh, while I was very, very proud of just the session, just the, what happened around the table, what I was able to create out of it became like something I, I am very, very proud of. And so like, I think like I achieved some real horror. Uh, I almost didn't want to put it out. I almost offended myself with it. And that's how I was like, well, I made horror then, right? If I'm not sure I want to put it out. So like, I don't know. I, anyway, yeah, that, I'm done talking about it, but that's that's episode 13. There you go. Yeah. And honestly, I you just coming out and saying like, hey, it was episode 13 of my podcast is all that I need to know that something memorable happens. Because I couldn't tell you the episode. I can't tell you the episode name of half the things that I run. So uh, knowing like the exact yeah. number, go to number 13 and you're going to have this awesome standalone story. That tells me, yes, this is something that I need to go check out. Mm, thanks. Cool. Definitely. Um, I guess I can share a story about Pariah and that helps showcase why he's become my favorite. Yeah. What setting? What world? Is this character uh, from? This is a it's a very heavily DD inspired world. Um homebrewed by our dungeon master Nick. Uh and we're all playing races he homebrewed as well. Uh we're we're playing it in Dungeons and Dragons, fifth edition. But the world itself is is definitely his creation, and uh not to give too much away, but the whole big thing of the world is that the music that you, as a listener here, is actually being heard as part of the world. Uh, and so music has a sort of power and is omnipresent. And in fact, powerful huh. people oftentimes have music associated with them. 
like a soundtrack or like, like they a, own music? Like a soundtrack. Like they huh. walk in the room and the music changes. Ha. Huh. I like it. Uh, and so Pariah, uh, at one point in a dungeon, there was a puzzle. And Pariah is typically known for being a fan of puzzles. Um, he is the team rogue and skill monkey. Uh, but they were far into this dungeon, and he was tired. And so the puzzle gets read in this grandiose manner, and people are beginning to uh, give off their ideas. And he immediately... The solution to the puzzle was to basically take an eye for an eye. You take the eye out of the skeleton and you lose one. Pariah walks over and immediately just snatches an eye, grabs the thing, and walks out of the room. Wasn't having it. Didn't want to find out the easy way. He was done. And just that, that kind of, of gumption plus self-sacrifice really embodies his character. And mm. I, I am very enthusiastic to put him in other situations. Very cool. Yeah. I could not tell you what episode that happens in. I have no idea. <laughs> all right. Well, that does it for all of the listener questions. Uh, did either of you have any questions for each other or for me? Just putting that out there. I mean, I feel like we could probably talk about this stuff all night. <laughs> you know, I mean, um, I am definitely curious uh, to, uh, I mean, for, uh, it sounds like, you know, you guys are uh, from m a bit more of the, I don't, I don't want to say like the more serious side of the player characters or the GMs, but like, you know, there are the casual players, there's the goofball players, and then the people who like take it like seriously. And then mm -hmm. there are people who maybe take it a little too seriously, but like there's a nice, you know, like there's a middle ground, I think, of like of that level of commitment. And um I'm uh I'm curious to think uh, I mean because one of the things that I think that we're starting to see uh, sort of in this new gaming renaissance that we're all sort of experiencing now. It's just been just really, really, really exciting being sort mm -hmm. of, you know, an old school gamer from, you know, the late 80s, early 90s where, you know, we, we, we were pariahs and now apparently we're cool. I don't know if we're ever truly cool, but it's cooler now. You can talk about Dungeons and Dragons, let alone. Uh, anyway, I'm, I'm it's, it's cool to not be cool. It's, it's <laughs> right. It's ironic now or whatever, but I guess we... I, I'm from a place where like this was not a cool hobby. This was not considered a cool thing that you did. You did this because you liked it and you were a nerd, mm -hmm. you know. But um, I think I can. I am one of many of those, you know, people who can cite, uh, you know, gaming and um, sort of the the skills, uh, both socially, mathematics, whatever. All the all the stuff that we learn from, you know, uh, from this play applied. You know, applying these rules and in, into sort of either social scenarios or problem solving scenarios, whatever, that there are more benefits than it just being sort of an enjoyable hobby. And uh, I mean, I think that that actually could even go deeper. And that's one of the uh, sort of uh, uh, focuses of, of my work more than just doing these podcasts, uh, other things that I'm involved in. I'm curious just to hear what your guys thoughts on that would be, because it's always curious to, or always a, a point of interest to me to hear from other gamers of what they think of sort of the practical applications of gaming can be as well as just being a hobby. Do you know what I mean? Oh, definitely. Um, I, I would say that, uh, so I grew up in Wisconsin about gaming Mecca. <laughs> yeah, about about 30 minutes, 45 minutes away from Lake Geneva. Mm. Uh, I have seen Gary Gygax's monuments and everything uh, that are down there. Uh, and a high school friend of mine, his father was a friend of Gary Gygax. So I was indoctrinated very wow. early into mm. gaming and everything and fell in love with it. And I, I actually have to say that playing role-playing games and video games to a lesser extent has really 
help to shape my personality. And when you say that to a lot of people, they kind of cringe. Mm. Mm -hmm. But in reality, what it is is playing in these games has given me problem-solving skills. It's helped me foster a greater sense of empathy and helped me mm -hmm. to interact with each other and overcome difficulties in interpersonal relationships just by virtue of being a player or a GM and having to deal with them. Um, so I would say that gaming is... It's a great thing for uh, helping to helping people interact with each other. Yes, yeah. I for one thing, GMing especially, but even being a player to uh, an extent, it teaches you speaking skills uh, or or writing skills if you're doing a, a play by post sort of game. Yeah. But it teaches you how to command the attention of a group, especially if you have a <laughs> rowdy group. And so how do you cut through that to make sure that you get the appropriate uh, spotlight time? It also teaches you, as, again, as the GM, how to find those people that can't step into the spotlight on their own. I play a lot. I, I not only run for my group, but I run games at conventions. And I'm. Tr it's always learning. You can always do better. But I, I always consider it a win when you see that player it's like all right they're they're checking their phone or they're obviously not engaging with it oh no somebody else is just running roughshod over them all right how can I pull them out what do I need to do and it's all about trying different strategies sometimes they might mm. not sometimes you just need to like ask them out of character it's like hey is everything okay do I need to you know do you do that out of character check-in and sometimes it's all right they you're remembering hey they responded really well when there was a cute animal earlier on so maybe I can give them some sort of of natural interaction maybe it's the the interacting with quote-unquote people that is too off-putting for them and it's putting too much pressure so maybe it's you know having an animal is going to help them out so it's that problem solving like you were saying and and problem solving with people mm -hmm. yeah it's it's fun it's um it is definitely there's definitely like a social problem solving and being able to put in uh your own storytelling and creativity and put that to use with this problem solving as well i think uh it is is a good a good help for a lot of people because oftentimes especially uh not even just for problem solving, but for putting yourself out there. A lot of times as a GM, you start to get that world in your head and you start to have that story and you want to get it out. And so you learn how to because you just, you have to. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's also one of the few creative endeavors that I think you get immediate feedback on. Think about if you are a visual artist, well, you're probably going to spend hours working on this painting or or creating a video game before anybody ever sees it. If you are a writer, sure. you spend months, years creating a story, pouring your heart and soul into it before anybody is ever going to know what you've been doing. Whereas gaming, it's anytime that your group gets together, you're getting immediate feedback as you are playing on how things are going. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Definitely. It's like directing, it's like creating the movie as you go. Exactly. It's like, oh, it's suddenly this plot is, screw this plot hook, or it's too slow, or we need some action, or whatever. Yeah. You know, I mean, and that's a part part of being a good GM is actually to be able to think like a director. Mm -hmm. You know, what are we putting in the mind's eye, the, the theater of the mind and, and you know, the, around this table or whatever, keeping the story moving and that sort of thing. But yeah. uh, that's a really good way to think about it. Yeah. Like uh, being a GM is is directing collaborative storytelling. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. Yeah. So if you want to direct some collaborative storytelling... You know what to do. <laughs> Absolutely. It's basically the only way you can. The only way you can. I mean, there aren't really any other, you know, endeavors that can, that do what gaming does. Uh, it's at least not in the way that it does, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is a very unique experience. And uh, I, as many questions as we get from people curious about how to start and where they can get all these materials uh and what about this weird edge case uh 
ultimately it is a very unique experience and no game you're going to run is ever going to go perfectly perfect and that's fine yes yes it is so if you're on the fence about playing if you're on the fence about work working your uh, story into this collaborative effort just because of something where you're afraid of failing or you're afraid of uh, somebody not liking some interaction uh, ultimately I say just work towards it and play mm-hmm well I would I would simply stress that if you had some reason to ask that question in the first place every fear hides a secret desire in the first place so if you ask the question you already want the result it's just the way it is you have it's just can you kick yourself into gear to actually do it it is a lot of work and it is in many ways uh a, a, a one of those commitments that uh that you you will never see the bottom of but um is rewarding in a way that um i don't know even being a writer even doing other you know creative works is like nothing quite rewards you in the same way as like writing a story that was so that came alive in a way that people interacted with it truthfully that you got some truth out of it you know and that's that is that that's real art that's creating some real art and that's that's really so, like why i love this hobby so much you know yeah absolutely I, I agree and uh world building and building pieces of uh your own story home brewing and improvisation uh are a big part of that art and they they help you make it what it truly can be so if you're wanting to homebrew if you're asking a question like robert said that fear of what about if people don't like the world i made is just hiding your desire to make a world that people like so make a world and people like us are already fans of you even wanting to try yeah exactly so, so try all right. I think we're going to wrap it up. Uh, thank you both so much for joining me. Absolutely. Thank you for having us. That was a lot of fun. Definitely. A lot of fun. This has been Running the Table with my guests today, Angela Kraft and Robert Randall. Please follow the links in the description of this podcast and check out and support their projects as well. I'd also like to thank you for listening. And if you find yourself with questions you want answered about anything tabletop role-playing game related, please send them to rttpodcast at gmail.com by email. You can also reach me at Running the Table on both Twitter and Facebook. 